2: Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, September 28th, 2023. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and also gather around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com. I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor BJ Colangelo.
3: Hi, hi, hiya.
2: BJ, it's a great day. Uh, It's a great week because the writer's strike is finally over.
3: I'm so thrilled and the deal they got is bananas awesome.
2: <laughs> yes, so that's what we want to talk about a little bit uh, at the start of the show today. Uh, I mentioned uh, on Tuesday's show that a tentative agreement had been reached. Um, basically the writers are now officially back at work. Um, everything is is all good. I think the ratification vote still needs to happen but it seems like a formality at this point um, mm-hmm. because as you mentioned the deal that they got, was uh, pretty great. So um I guess like what have you been hearing about this deal BJ because I know that you're like more tapped into you have a lot of friends who are screenwriters. You yeah, have like you're you're more tapped into that that world than I am.
3: Yeah, so basically um something that I think is really important for people to realize is that when the negotiations first started, obviously the WJ's proposals were they were kind of shooting ahead. Like, you know, you you always when, when you're in a deal it's like oh if you only want to pay like two hundred dollars you or you will originally be like oh i only want a hundred and then you work your way up to 200 or in this instance like they shot for the moon and they were hoping to you know fall somewhere in the middle they got like three quarters of the way there uh for all of the things they wanted i think they were impressed even in themselves at how much they were able to get um the the Ones that I think are really big is uh, the way that this is going to change, like staffing sizes and guaranteed uh, rooms, um, which should effectively curb some of the issues with mini rooms, which I wrote about at the start of the strike and how mini rooms are kind of the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be seeing a curb on that, and I know one of the other big ones is AI. Uh, that was a big sticking point at the beginning of the negotiations, where you know the AMPTP basically said. Ah, We'll have meetings about AI. How about that? And now, with the deal, it's like, okay ai can't be copyrighted material <laughs> we can't make you use chat gpt and like that's huge that's really exciting stuff and then of course you know increasing on residuals um everyone's like very happy across the board yeah um I, i've seen nobody upset at all
2: <laughs> yeah yeah it's been really great yeah you mentioned a few of the, the huge ones especially ai that was definitely like really really big uh, one of the the I guess, important ones that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention is um, like pension and health, like uh, the benefits kind of thing, and especially how that impacts writing teams, which my understanding was that like writing teams previously had to split, you know, whatever, I guess, money sort of uh, or or benefits or, or, um, you know, health minimums and all that kind of stuff like went to them. They had to just like divide them in two as if they were half a person or something, you know, uh, but now so
3: weird. Yeah,
2: totally nuts. But now um, each writer is going to be treated as an individual in a, in a writing team. So they, um, that is like a, a life changing thing for a lot of um, writing teams out there. So that's awesome. Um, there's like, basically like the floor has been raised in terms of like uh, pay minimums. everybody's is going to be paid a little bit more, which is always good. And then, uh, residuals as you mentioned is a big deal um I think the one thing that like I was hoping for in like a perfect you know uh the writers um you know dance on the grave of the amptp in terms of like a total victory which I didn't quite get but I, I was hoping for uh all of these studios and streamers especially to have to bust open their books and be completely and totally transparent with every (laughs) single, you know, data point of who is watching what and all that. And we didn't really get that they did get um, viewership based streaming bonuses, which is a big deal. um, Because, you know, one of the big uh, talking points behind the strike is like, hey, if we're working for, you know, a show like Wednesday or Bridgerton, or like one of these big hit shows that that really pops on Netflix, why are we not sharing and the success, um, that those shows bring to the streamer. And so now there's like all sorts of, um, like, uh, categorizations and stuff in terms of like, if a a movie or a show is made for X amount of budget and it's watched by at least 20% of a streamer's domestic subscriber base in the first 90 days, then like all of these, uh, bonus tiers get, um, get handed out to the writer. So that kind of stuff did, straight up did not exist before the strike happened. And now mm-hmm. um, I think I've heard Adam Conover, who was one of the, um, a member of the negotiating committee. And he was, I think he was on a show or the the showrunner and star of a show called Adam Ruins Everything. People might recognize mm-hmm. him from that. Um, he mentioned on, on another podcast that like the big deal, you know, even though some of these things might not sound like they're completely world-changing, they establish a framework that then can be built on in future negotiations and years to come. Like he was talking about how residuals back when those first started, I think in like the early sixties or something, were not nearly what they were in the, you know, the friends or Seinfeld era where they became like a huge um, way that writers could actually make money and stuff. So um, that was built on over a 30 year period or whatever. So now that these, um, these new frameworks are put in place, that's just going to make it easier for the writers to be able to continue to get what they're worth and, and help, um, you know, make more money in the future and stuff. So, uh, we have a, a great, yeah, a great article called everything movie fans need to know about the new WGA deal that I'm going to link to in the show notes and it goes into much more detail on all of this, but we just wanted to take a moment, you know, at the top of the show to sort of, uh, praise everybody who sacrificed so much over these past four or five months Um, and, and really congratulate all of the WGA members out there who have been struggling and got like, yeah, pretty incredible deal when, when all is said and done. Um,
3: and, uh, you know, as of our recording, um, AMPTP is scheduled to meet with SAG on Monday, um, so those talks are going to be happening as well. So hopefully, once we we've already got the writers back to work, we'd love to see SAG back at work um, because you know then then we're we're back in business. <laughs>
2: yeah, totally. And once the actor strike is over, things are going to be. You know, really, really chaotic. I think productions are going to start trying to ramp up all at the same time because, like, the floodgates will have opened, and oh yeah, <laughs> uh, studios and and um, streamers and all you know, all, all production companies basically are going to be fighting over whatever limited available space there is in sound stages and trying to uh, figure out all the actors' schedules and all of that kind of stuff. So it's just going to be like pure. And, and and then you're talking about leading into. The period of like Thanksgiving and Christmas, when traditionally Hollywood like shuts down in the middle of November uh, until the beginning of January. So like, is that going to happen in the same way this year? Um, When so many people have been out of work for for so long, I don't know. And then Mm -hmm. you've got award season to consider, which is like just kind of, yeah, really insane.
3: It's going to get nuts, but it'll be a good problem to have. And I mean, also in just like union talk, uh, IATSE does their negotiations next year and these wins with the WGA, they do have an effect moving forward with IATSE as well because now they can go okay well this is what you provided for the writers here's what we want and hopefully that will prevent a strike because they'll be able to know immediately where negotiations have to be so it's it's in its exciting time it's stressful and chaotic and I'm already like mildly manic imagining how this is all going to go down for us but i'm very very happy for everybody
2: yeah and iotzi i think is like the the um official union name of the teamsters like the guys who like drive the trucks and and like you know help out uh guys and girls and and people you know not just guys uh i and in my um you know old school like Uh, Looney Tunes brain there's like a a picture of a guy with a hat like a truck driver hat pulled down so far (laughs) over his head that uh, you can't even see his eyes like that's my you know um mental image of an IATSE member. But um, I'm sure the membership is much more diverse now than it was (laughs) back in the Looney Tunes days.
3: Yeah, IATSE is actually, you know, theatrical stage employees, moving picture technicians as well. So this includes film and stage, but, you know, this is your production designers. This is uh, people that are working uh, as as grips, like everybody who does kind of like that side of things, everybody falls under IATSE. And then Teamsters are, yes, the drivers. So there's, you know... That's the bigger chunk of of the industry, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. is IOTC. So hopefully, uh, the AMPGB has learned from this experience, and uh, they know going into negotiations next year. Uh, what to expect. And we don't have to go through 100 plus days again.
2: (laughs) Yes, that would be certainly ideal. Um, I also wanted to mention briefly that uh, according to the Hollywood Reporter, Warner Brothers Television has started lifting suspensions of deals with writer producers, like big ones like J.J. Abrams and people and like uh, Greg Berlanti is another one. And that stuff is effective today. So um, yeah, the writers are uh, able to go back to work and we'll see in terms of like the ratification and all that. But like I said, that, that part's basically just a formality I'm sure that stuff is going to get you know, sorted out within the next couple of weeks. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, SAG meets up with the studios on Monday. So fingers crossed that uh, everything will go quickly and smoothly. And then, yeah, we'll be fully back in business very soon. But we'll keep you posted on any big updates as they come in. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into the water cooler.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make?
2: All right, BJ, what have you been doing recently?
3: I have had quite possibly the busiest week that I've had all year. Um, I've just been in junket land, uh, seeing things, doing interviews, uh, getting to be in the throes of of junket press land, um, which is fun. Like that's part of the perk of doing this job, but is also, you know, incredibly exhausting because you have to be like on and personable all day, and I have like a, a very small window where I am like the most enthusiastic, very cool person to be around, and then I just get real exhausted really fast. Um, <laughs> but I can say what junkets they were. I can't say you know what was discussed in that. You'll have to wait until they get published on Slash Film. Uh, but this week it was for Wish Once Upon a Studio. Uh, that's the short film that will be coming to ABC on October fifteenth, um, as well as Five Nights at Freddy's and exorcist believer so you know uh two sides of the same coin disney movies and horror films
2: <laughs> definitely um there is a bunch of wish stuff that has already been published on slash films so if you want to read that i'll, I'll drop a, a few of those links in the show notes if people want to check those out um So BJ, you live in LA. So a lot of this was actually in person, like most of the, you know, especially in the pandemic era, a lot of junket stuff has been moved to like a virtual thing. So you're even more sort of out of it because you've had to be like sitting in traffic for hours this week, you know, being, uh, traveled or, or, you know, traversing, um, the traffic of Los Angeles, trying to get to different studio lots and and wherever you were doing stuff. So (laughs)
3: It's always chaotic um, because, you know, Los Angeles, everyone talks about like, oh, the traffic's really bad. No, it's that bad. Like, it's really that bad. Uh, I'm a transplant here. So I'm, you know, still very much adjusting to that world. Um, and, you know, just junkets last all day, but they tend to end around the same time that a work day ends. So if you're uh, last on the list, which... I was the very last one yesterday to do an interview. Uh, (laughs) That meant that I was, uh, you know, in gridlock in my lift on the way home. But luckily, my driver was cool and I got home very quickly. I was very (laughs) impressed, actually. It was kind of impressive.
2: Yeah, Um, that's one of the few things about L.A. that I do not miss at all. I, I miss a lot about the city. There's so much like it's so vibrant. There's so much going on all the time. But man, that traffic, I know it's like a super cliche at this point but like good it, god yeah it's a
3: lot and yeah on the uh, on the drive home for me i passed by both warner brothers and universal and i will say it was really cool to go by and not see pickets uh i mean like th- you can see the sag pickets but like not seeing like the flood of wga picketing Yes. Yeah. like wow i was like the- it's changing like it's a tangible evidence that things are changing
2: yes a new era hopefully um okay so so I haven't really been reading much. Um, let's get into what we've been watching. I watched a movie called The Royal Hotel. Is this one on your radar at all, BJ? Do you know no, about this? No, not
3: at all. What is this?
2: So Kitty Green is the director. She uh, wrote and directed a movie called The Assistant a couple of years ago. A pretty small film starring Julia Garner, where she's basically playing an assistant in the office of like a uh, Weinstein Company type of um, production house, mm-hmm. where like there's definitely some uh, untoward abuse going on you know in, in the back rooms or whatever and uh, it's about th- this young girl who has to who is like worked at this place for like a few weeks and does not have the power to step up and try to stop this awful behavior that she's sort of um, loosely witnessing I don't think the movie actually I've never actually seen the film but I was doing a lot of research about it um, because uh, the Royal Hotel is her is uh, Kitty Green's next movie and then this one also stars Julia Garner and it, it touches on some similar themes because this one is about Julia Garner and Jessica Hennick, who was in a uh, game of Thrones. Oh, loving,
3: loving monsters.
2: Yes. Yes. Uh, she's great. Um, so those two play good friends. They're Americans and they go backpacking across the world and they end up in Australia and they run out of money. And this is in, like the first 10 minutes and they end up having to take jobs at this isolated hotel bar basically that's out in the middle of absolute nowhere and there's like a mining town out there so there's all these like rough and tumble gruff looking dudes who um like come out and just drink at this bar every night and they have to live at this place and and work at this bar to make up and you know to make enough money for them to continue on in their travels and uh hugo weaving plays the proprietor of the bar and uh as soon as they get out there things go pretty south like things go bad so it's a it's a thriller (laughs) movie um but yeah some of the the same uh, uh like some of the thematic explorations seem similar in terms of like you know what it's like to be a woman in a situation where there are powerful men around you and you're not really sure what to do and, and like how far is too far, how far are you willing to be pushed before you push back? Uh, And all of that kind of stuff is at play in, in this movie. And I found it to be like a very, very effective thriller. So I think this one comes out in theaters like early October. So I think, yeah, October 6th. So like basically just a week or so from now. Um, So yeah, put this one on your radar. It's called the Royal Hotel. And I think, uh, I think you'd like it, BJ. It's good stuff.
3: Yeah, that sounds definitely up my alley.
2: Uh, I also saw Love at First Sight. Uh, this actually seems like something that you would have maybe thrown on in the background. This is a Netflix movie, a Netflix rom-com uh, uh, directed by Vanessa Caswell, and it stars Haley Lou Richardson and somebody named Ben Hardy, who I've, I've never heard of. Uh, it's, a, it's a new Netflix rom-com. Are you familiar with this one at all?
3: I am familiar with this one uh, because this is one that I put on while folding laundry, which I know uh, in (laughs) Brad's interview with Brian Duffield, that has become like the term that the studios use of like, well, how is this movie going to appeal to people that are like watching it while they're doing their laundry? And I was like, oh, I'm part of the problem. Oh, no.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess lucky for Netflix, question mark, this movie (laughs) seems to be designed specifically for that purpose. Like there (laughs) are... Are, um, there are logic holes and like uh editing problems and things in this movie that if you're actually sitting down and giving it your full attention, you're like, wait a second, what? That like literally doesn't make sense with what I saw just a couple minutes before. Uh, but it definitely just seems like a movie that was designed specifically to, you know, just be on in the background. It's a background movie. Um I you know, that is is not high praise for me, but I will give high praise to Haley Lou Richardson, who I just think is like eminently watchable and oh she my just God, like yeah she's
3: so delightful.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean so, so good. Even in a movie with like questionable script and, you know, it's just, it's just a cheesy movie and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I just wish this movie actually like landed, it's landed the plane a little bit better. Um, because I think it could have actually been, I could, it could have actually like elevated above the, uh, typical cheesy Netflix rom-com, uh, categorization if it actually, uh, really like stuck the landing. And I unfortunately don't think it did. So now it just falls back into that cheesy rom-com category and like, that's it. So, um, there's not much to actually recommend here for me anyway, except for Haley Richardson's performance, which again, I thought was uh, very impressive given the script. Um, but what did you think about this one as you were watching it, Folding Laundry?
3: Oh yeah, no, it's exactly that. I was, it's This is a movie that it's a good thing that I'm not fully paying attention to. Um, but yeah, I co-signed with the Haley Richardson. I also like Jamila Jamil. Um, I know yeah. that, like, people have mixed feelings about her. I think as a performer, I find her very, very entertaining. Um, but yeah, Haley Ru- Lou Richardson is somebody that i seek out often um so if this rom-com doesn't work for people i do highly recommend unpregnant on max which was an abortion road trip movie that she was in with barbie ferria that kind of just got unceremoniously released when the streaming app launched. So it did miss a lot of people's radar. So if you watch this Netflix movie and you're like, she's great, this movie is fine. uh, You can watch that movie where she's great and the movie's great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And people might know her, you know, if if that name, if she's not quite a household name for all of our listeners yet, she should be, and hopefully will be very soon, but um, she was in season two of the white Lotus. So uh, Mm -hmm. that may be where people might recognize her from, Um, you know, a big popular thing that she was in recently. So uh, yeah, yeah, that is called love at first sight. um I also had a chance to watch Telemarketers on Max. Do you have you heard about this documentary series?
3: Yes. So I have weird feelings about it. So I'm really curious to hear your take.
2: Uh, so my take was I was disappointed at the ending because this is one of those documentaries that like kind of doesn't have I, basically my take is that the jinx spoiled me on documentaries forever. I think because that, that documentary, which came out in like 2014, 2015 had such a dynamite, like cracker Jack. Oh my God. I can't believe this is actually happening ending that now it's like set such a high bar. And this is like, to be very clear, this is a me problem um, that like all other documentaries uh are in my mind striving to reach that kind of thing, that kind of like holy shit moment at the end and this like life itself is not as um, as easy as that, right? like it doesn't come to easy answers in the same way that the Jenks had this incredible thing sort of fall into their lap. So uh, the the basic premise here is that it's a true a true crime documentary, Uh, using a bunch of footage from like the early 2000s of these guys who worked at a telemarketing company called Civic Development Group, um, who were essentially at at certain points, like posing as members of the police and like working on behalf of the, um, what are they called? FOPs. What what, what does that stand for? It's uh, Fraternal Order of Police, I think. Um, And basically trying to fleece people out of money by saying like, hey, we're calling on behalf of the cops. Will you uh, give us some money to support the police in your area or whatever and then the police would only take a very small percentage of that money that they would uh that these people would would fork over over the phone and then the the telemarketing company would pocket like 90% of the money of the donations um so the the owners of this uh company, just got insanely rich and started opening different telemarketing offices all over the country. And the um, filmmakers behind this show, Telemarketers, this three-episode max show, were people who worked in those offices at the time and had cameras running at the time. And so there's all this incredible archival footage that really like throws you back in that period and paints the picture of what it was like to work in this really deranged working environment where there were no... Um, background checks and they hired uh, convicted cri- you know, felons and criminals and like people, they were just looking for bodies to be on the phone and call people. They did not care about, you know, hiring uh, people who were presentable or had decent resumes or anything like that at all. Um, and so there were kind of like incredible pieces of footage that, that came out of that. And then now all these years later, these people who worked in that uh, telemarketing call center realized, hey, the, the uh, big bosses here. We're doing like crazy illegal stuff. We got to like try to blow the lid off this thing. Um, and we have this uh, unique position from which we experienced all of this. And now let's try to do something about it. Let's try to like actually take this to the highest levels of the U S government and like try to see if we can um, get things done or get things in place to protect uh, these people who are just being, you know, o- older people or whatever, people who are being bullied or or tricked into giving these donations. So um, it's kind of an incredible story, but it just it it kind of ends in the hopes that like you as the viewer are galvanized to maybe do something about it or like call your senator or like um, you know say like I- I'm outraged by what I've seen here. I can't believe that this is a thing that's still happening. Um, and it kind of like passes the ball to the audience to. To, um or i guess passes the baton really to to take it and move forward and and now it's up to us to do something in the next step of this process um which inherently is just like a little narratively anticlimactic in in a way um but i still think it was worth watching and it was just like a, a really um fascinating documentary series but what was your take on it bj
3: yeah, so I found this to be really fascinating. The characters are all like very compelling people. I have a soft spot for documentaries that are about like th- this very specific brand of like weirdo of <laughs> like American movies my fa- like my favorite documentary ever made and so I like people that you know we don't often see in the spotlight even though this is a documentary where they're not you know being presented as you know in a particularly kind light but you realize you know these are people also being manipulated um, the mixed feeling that I have about this is not the documentary's fault it's more of like a societal issue um, because basically this is about the way that like blue collar people are exploited in white collar crime and i hate that it takes something like a telemarketers or like like one of these big exposes for people to kind of like get it through their head that like (laughs) people in positions of power are not inherently good people and like nobody becomes a billionaire without exploiting like people who are just trying to get by and like why is this so hard for people to understand yeah Um, yeah yeah So that's very much how I feel about it. And because of that ending of like, you you know, where it does kind of put the onus on the viewer to like, you know, take the next step sort of thing. It's like, no, like (laughs) that's not our responsibility. The responsibility is people who have the power to actually enact this change need to know right from wrong. They shouldn't need their constituents to be like, hello, Senator, we should stop the corruption in this way. Like, no, they should do it already. They don't need us to whine at them for this. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's a great point. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's a frustrating watch in certain ways, but also I think the characters that I call them characters, but the people in this thing, especially, uh, Patrick J. Pespes, I think is his name. Um, it's just like such an incredible, um, television figure, <laughs> you know, he, he holds the camera in such a way, uh, that he's like magnetic to watch. So, um, you know, th- I think there's enough that sort of offsets that awful feeling that, that you get uh, where you're like shaking your fist at the world um, or maybe not offsets, but, but uh, it comes close to, to equaling. So um, I would say telemarketers is still worth watching if you're interested. Definitely. in this kind of um, I also had a chance to watch the wonderful story of Henry sugar, which is the new Wes Anderson short film that's up on Netflix right now. Um, it's 39 minutes long and it's based on a rolled doll book, uh, or a, a short story uh, in a collection of short stories. Um, evidently, I so, okay, I'll I'm, I'm take one step back here for a second. Wes Anderson released uh, Asteroid City earlier this year, and I knew that he had this short film coming to Netflix as well. So I was like, oh, cool, two Wes Anderson projects in a, in a year. But actually, this m- movie, this short film, is the first of four uh, that are going <laughs> to be rolled out over the course of the next... I think three days or something. So like there's yeah. already another one that's called the Swan that is on Netflix that I just learned about a few minutes ago and haven't seen yet. There's one called the rat catcher. And then another one called poison that I think are going to be rolled out. Yeah. In, in like one a day or something over the next couple of days. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's like five Wes Anderson projects and yes, four of them are shorts, but still uh, kind of a cool thing. So um, did you have a chance to see the wonderful story of Henry sugar yet?
3: Oh yeah. And, I I firmly believe that Wes Anderson understands Roald doll in a way that a lot of filmmakers just don't. Like he just, he gets that material and it's just so whimsical and it makes me so happy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. Like I, my wife and I watched it and I was kind of like stunned into silence by the end of it because the speed of this movie is unbelievable. Like the, you know, it's 39 minutes long. And after it was over, I kind of like thought about it for a second. I was like, is this the piece, the single piece of like filmed entertainment that has the highest uh, like spoken word to runtime ratio? Because (laughs) everybody in this movie, every single character is speaking like, as fast as you've ever heard a human being talk, basically. Um, And there's like no downtime at all. It is like super efficient. It is the the most efficient, streamlined version of the story that I can possibly imagine existing. Um, It's really kind of incredible in that way. And Benedict Cumberbatch is in this, Ray Fine, uh, Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley. Um, Yeah, the, the cast is really great. And the story is just really cool. I remember reading this as a kid and being like, uh really having my imagination um, lit up by this idea of like a guy who can see without actually using his eyes. that's the basic uh, premise of it. and Benedict Cumberbatch's character plays a, a modern man who, stumbles across a book about this this uh, man who can see without his eyes and tries to like learn the techniques that this guy developed um, in order to cheat at cards where he can like see through the back of a playing card and uh, gamble and win money from casinos and things like that. So yeah, that's the the basic outline of the story. But like, man, the, the way that Wes Anderson is able to translate all of this stuff visually is so cool and the way that uh, the sets, like the production design in this is amazing as it is in every Wes Anderson film, but like particularly in this because the pieces of the stage and set like lift up and get pulled back and like the, it's so um, immersive. It's, it's like a, a split between a movie experience and like a stage show at the same time. So um, what, what did you make of like the, the look and the, um, that sort of like almost rotating set vibe that you get from this thing?
3: Oh, it's beautiful, it's theatrical, it feels... Like it, this feels like it's in Wes Anderson's comfort zone. Like people like to make memes about his aesthetic and his cinematography choices, but this works with the material so well because it does have like this sense of whimsical reality, which I really, really enjoy. And like <laughs> Kingsley's wigs are just like their own <laughs> like sort of character in this. It's really just, it's nice. It's really nice. And sometimes it's nice to watch something nice. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. That's a great review. Uh, so that's called the wonderful story of Henry sugar. It is on Netflix right now. And yeah, just um, search for Wes Anderson's name in the coming days. If you're looking to catch up with the other shorts that he's going to be releasing soon. Uh, okay. I'm going a little long here, so I, I apologize, but I wanted to mention just really quick that I, I watched the series finale of reservation dogs, which is a show that I've talked about in this podcast before. Um, the third season to me was not quite as great as season two. I feel like, the first two seasons really built to a natural end point, And then the third season kind of feels a little bit uh, tacked on or sort of like a, an afterthought to some degree. But I think this finale and a couple other episodes of the season really crystallized the reason that the show came back. And I'm glad that it did at the end of the day. Like I was thinking after the, the high of the season two finale, like, is there a really a reason to bring the show back? And I think the, this is a, a great, um, th- they did provide a great reason to bring this back when all is said and done. The, the uh, individual episodes maybe were a little scattered. The the grander narrative wasn't quite as uh, cohesive, I thought, in season three. But the thematic through lines that they were dealing with and, um the idea that like this whole season is about the idea of uh, community I thought was really, really well executed. And there's like a scene at the beginning of this episode, the the season three finale, the series finale that I thought was like, I think the best illustration of what community is and how people relate to each other that I've maybe ever seen. Like it was so simple and so effective and um, just like very moving and incredibly done. So uh, this is a show that I think has never been, you know a, a huge huge show i know it's been like critically acclaimed and a lot on a lot of uh end of the year lists and things like things like that but if our listeners are especially now as we're still feeling the effects of the strike and we will be for many months to come looking for a new show to jump into i would definitely recommend going back and checking out reservation dogs because it's one of those shows that i think i saw somebody say like it's in in like a write-up of the uh sort of like a almost like an obituary like a send off of the show a tribute to the show as it was as it's now going away um that is one of those rare shows that like you never knew what the next episode was going to bring it it has that uh that factor of surprise that so few shows do today kind of reminded me a little bit of atlanta in that regard so um did you have a chance to see any of uh reservation dogs season three bj
3: I'm a couple episodes behind because I don't want it to end. So I'm like trying to savor it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, Wonderful stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I would love to know what you think about the finale uh, as a whole. So, um, and oh, God, there's like, I, I don't want to say who appears in uh, season three, but there's a guest star that when you see the episode, you'll know it. And um, I don't know if you've got there yet, BJ, or, or maybe if it's the next episode that you're going to watch, but like, whew, man, that episode, so good. Anyway, uh, Reservation Dogs is on Hulu right now if you want to check that out. Uh, What have you been watching recently, BJ?
3: Well, since Spooky Season is right around the corner, I am diving into my annual rewatch of the entirety of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, All of the episodes are available on Paramount Plus, and it is something that I do every year because it always gets me into the mood for spooky season but it also gives me a lot of those you know those nice nostalgia feels i've seen it so many times that i can you know clean my house do whatever i need to do and i'm not missing out much but what's interesting is that i've seen the entire series at this point probably six or seven times in its entirety and i still find new things that i find either creepy or interesting or funny um and because so many of them are following just like very standard storytelling you know because they're campfire tales but very, like, standard storytelling techniques. It's interesting to watch the different approaches or you find, like, the different themes of, you know, this specific character. They often tell stories that have to do with ghosts or this character tends to tell stories that have, you know, moral lessons at the end of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And finding that is really nice, but the thing that's been really cool to see lately is just how unapologetically 90s this show is and always was. Um, I I was recently watching the... (laughs) uh the episode uh it's it's a vampire episode where it's the nightly neighbors the kids are convinced that their next door neighbors are vampires it's very fright night in that regard and uh it's because they discover that their neighbors are ukrainian they only work at night and they're like oh the ukraine's really close to romania and transylvania they must be vampires and of course they all have like the very thick like Bela Lugosi Hungarian accent Mm -hmm. but one of the characters like the kids investigating is nicknamed Day Day so you have a vampire character that's like we will always come to visit now Day Day and you're like what (laughs) is this nonsense and it's just so fun and I think that we are in a little bit of a drought for gateway horror which is a subgenre I feel very passionate about so it is nice to go back and rewatch a show that was totally cool with possibly you know scaring the hell out of a bunch of kids Mm -hmm. uh, after school I just appreciate it and it makes me happy
2: did you see uh and forgive me if we've talked about this already but did you you see any of like the nickelodeon um i I don't know what you would call it a reboot or like a revival series okay what did you think about that
3: i liked the revival series a lot i thought that they were bringing a lot of those elements into you know the more like a a newer audience because things change you do have to approach storytelling differently um uh rafael kazal i can never remember how to actually pronounce Mm -hmm, his last mm -hmm. name during that first season where it's kind of got the circus thing i thought he was so compelling like a wonderful successor to the characters, you know, like Dr. Vink and I I really, really enjoyed it. Um, It's hard to take off the nostalgia glasses because the 90s are always going to be the ones that I prefer because that's what I grew up with but I was really excited with the newer versions. I'm excited for the new Goosebump series that's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, all of that just makes me happy. I just, I do wish that we were able to have a new series for this sort of transitionary age group that's horror that didn't have to be are you afraid of the dark that didn't have to be goosebumps but i also understand that we're in like an ip obsessed landscape so i'm glad that i'm just glad that it exists at all
2: yeah, I kind of want to see them bring back like Eerie Indiana. You remember that show? I
3: loved on? Eerie Indiana. The, like the Tupperware stuff is so creepy It's because <laughs> that's like Joe Dante. So it's really creepy and also weird. And speaking of the one that was like my jammy jam was so weird, which was Disney's, uh, the Disney Channel's version of it, which had Mackenzie Phillips. And it was about a girl who would experience supernatural events and then blog about it on the Internet. So clearly oh, wow. it resonated with me. <laughs>
2: Amazing. Yeah, I totally missed that one. I think I was like there was a period where we didn't have the Disney channel in the early two thousands or whatever. And that must've been like right in that sweet spot of where it, it totally yeah. missed me. And
3: but- that one, a lot of the supernatural events had so weird are based heavily in folklore. So like you have episodes that are about like the whippoorwills um, and her, so her mom is Mackenzie Phillips, who's an American graffiti and is also the daughter of, you know, the mamas and the papas. Um, and the idea is that her mom's a touring musician. So she's exploring all of these different, you know, folklores or urban legends or characters from across the, country because oh you're in chicago these are the ghosts of the great chicago fire oh we're in roswell so it's an aliens episode uh, that it, sounds I,
2: rad I, as hell it
3: was so <laughs> awesome and like there are a couple episodes of that show uh there's one the episode titles like rebecca where you learn that her mom's like best friend like disappeared when they were kids and she never heard of her again and then the reveal is that it's because her mom's best friend is part of a family of like uh, they're immortals basically and they've been around since like the time of you know the ancient Egyptians wow and so they they can't stick around forever and there's this like heartbreaking song that her mom like wrote about her childhood best friend like I you're the best friend I've ever had. Like, please come back. And then it's the reveal of, oh, she can't be with your best friend because everyone she's ever known will die one day, and she's perpetually gonna be like twelve years old. And you're like, this is so heavy for Tragic. like a child show. Yeah, uh, wow. But yeah, I love it. That whole that whole era was great, and I wish that we gave that to kids again.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm looking right now to see. It's so weird. It should
3: be on Disney Plus.
2: Yeah, I was hoping that it is. Yes, it is. Okay, good. It is still. So uh, check it out. I, I think I'm going to add that to my Disney Plus queue. Yeah. This is a, a show that's clearly meant for children, and I'm sure we'll have uh, plenty of like, oh my God moments in terms of what blogging in the early 2000s looked like. But um. Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, supercomputers that have the answer to absolutely everything at any time, that kind of <laughs> exists there. But it is very fun and very cool.
2: Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for the episode. The Slashfilm Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you on Tuesday.